This is the Ruminant Podcast. I'm Jordan Marr. TheRuminant.ca is a website dedicated to sharing good ideas for farmers and gardeners. Most of the content on the site involves me posting other people's photos of their innovative farming tools, techniques, and ideas. I'd love to have a contribution from you, so please take some photos of what you're doing and send them to me at editor at theruminant.ca. Okay, let's do a podcast. All right, so first of all, I'm sorry for the delay since the last episode. My aim for this podcast is once a week, but that's going to be really hard to do during the growing season. The biggest challenge of keeping this up regularly, by the way, is lining up guests. So if you have any suggestions for me, particularly if you have a connection to a suggested guest and can vouch for me so the process is a bit streamlined, please write me. Editor at theruminant.ca Okay, today's episode. Pam Ronald is Professor of Plant Pathology and Chair of the Plant Genomics Program at the University of California, Davis where she studies the role that genes play in a plant's response to its environment. More relevant to this podcast is that in 2008, Pam and her husband Raul co-wrote a book called Tomorrow's Table, Organic Farming, Genetics, and the Future of Food. Raul is an organic farmer. Pam is a plant geneticist. And in the book, they make an argument for why the organic movement should reconsider its wholesale rejection of the role genetic engineering can and does play in plant breeding. I was really happy to see this book published, because I think the general conversation happening about genetic engineering within the organic community and between the anti-GMO and pro-GMO crowd is unhealthy. It's often driven more by ideology than reason on all sides. I've read the book, and I don't think it's ideologically motivated. Pam and Raoul sincerely believe that genetic engineering has an important and positive role to play in food security in the future, and in the book they explain why. They also acknowledge some of the ways in which biotechnology is problematic. Anyway, I asked Pam to come on the podcast to talk about the debate and about some of the points she makes in her book. Here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it, and I will talk to you again at the end. Pam Ronald, thanks a lot for coming on the Ruminant Podcast. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. We thought when we wrote the book it would be very simple, practical, but it it was more controversial than we expected. Can you can you tell me a little bit about the controversy that you experienced after the book was published? Well, I thought that there'd be a lot of people in the organic community that might be interested in reading it, but um, we, oh gosh, I don't even know if, if one would consider this controversial, but um, I did tune into Twitter and things like that, and it was very apparent right away there were sort of these camps that you were either in or you were out. And so we got labeled sort of as a pro-GMO camp, which is, of course, not how we saw our book at all. Um, and then once you're labeled a pro-GMO camp, then you have um, the anti-GMO people, you know, they put little comments on Twitter and stuff. So controversial in that way that it, it was very polarized. We thought we were just... Um, you know, wading into a conversation and um, providing some information based on our, our expertise, and we saw it as quite um, supportive of organic farming and, of course, as, and genetics as well. But um, I think it, it a lot of people 
Well, if you read the book, it's kind of pretty simple and basic, but I think people that don't read the book hear that we are radical pro-GMO people or something. Yeah, and I think that's got to be a common problem in every subject that on, on which books are written about is most of the most of the chorus that speaks out against the book hasn't read the book. <laughs> Unfortunately. Isn't that true? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but so so anyway, listen, Pamela, let me let me explain why I I've, I've been so interested in talking to you. Um I think because you're married to an organic farmer, we're both well aware that uh of of the stigma against genetic genetically engineered plants uh in the organic community and then in in the in the wider kind of Seg there's a, or, and a wider segment of the farming community as well, and I didn't call you today to to try and settle the discussion or further the, the the discussion itself. Although I do expect I will ask you to talk about a few points, but I wanted to talk about the discussion itself, and that's why uh -huh. it's it seemed great that that you let off by saying that you experienced um, some of this controversy. So if you'll just allow me to ramble on for another minute or so, I'll explain kind of where I'm coming from. Um, as someone who I feel like I have, I, I'm, I have an open mind and that I see some of the obvious benefits of, uh, that, that could be brought by genetically engineered seeds, uh, as well as a, a big theme in your book is that it's actually what risks exist are actually fairly low risk and lower risk than a lot of other, uh, risks we take in our daily lives. Um, but so while I definitely think I have an open mind at the same time, I find myself surrounded in terms of in my, in the organic community and among my colleagues, I, I feel like there is a fervent, uh, opposition to the technology and there's the, the, the discourse that happens. I, I, I just, I find it almost impossible to, to really decide how I feel with regards to the science and with regards to ultimately whether whether the organic community should embrace um, genetically engineered crops. So I guess one one thing I was hoping to do today was just to get you to talk about, like, I think I'm probably, to, of all the people who, 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 are, who are at least willing to entertain both sides, I'm probably fairly typical in that I feel, I get overwhelmed, Pam. I don't, you know, you see these, 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 these very thoughtful critiques coming from both sides, and, and I don't, you know, I, I just I worry about the future of this this debate if if um, if if the discourse that has been happening continues. So I know that's a fairly general set of statements, but I'm wondering if we can start with that and maybe you can comment on on how, how you would respond to someone who who is trying to get to form a position, but who is currently kind of fence sitting because it just both sides are so adamant that they have the science behind them. Well, but that's not, of course, that's not entirely true. I mean, of course, people say that, but it's just like global climate change where you have 99% um, of the scientists say that the climate is changing and it's due to human activity. And then, you know, two years ago, um, you're in Canada, right? It's, yeah, I'm, yeah. Yeah. I'm in British so, Columbia. So two years ago, the United States, there was, I forget the numbers, but, you know, 50 new Republicans elected to office all of them said they did not believe the science behind climate change. So that's the kind of debate you get where you have 99% of scientists agreeing, but then it becomes so politicized that you cannot be a Republican 
unless you make that statement, even though there is no science behind it. And I think we see the same thing. Did you follow, I don't know if you followed the vaccine debate. Again, maybe this is very U.S. particular, but there was a actress who went on TV and teamed up with kind of a shady MD to say that vaccines were linked to autism. And you had 99% of the scientific community. And so I always say community because you can never trust a single scientist. We all have our opinions, but there's this thing called scientific consensus. So the consensus was, you know, no, there's no proven link to autism and vaccines can save the life of your child. But then you have very, like, even we have this very progressive, very wealthy community here in Marin County, the parents quit vaccinating their children because they did not believe the scientific consensus. So I think when both groups say they have science on their side, really, what are they saying? Um, If you look at every scientific organization around the entire world, actually, I don't even know about Canada, but I, I, I doubt there are outliers National Academy of Science, the European Food Safety Authority, you know, the, the national experts in Mexico. If you go to the, the highest scientists and look at their reports, they all say the exact same thing. That, And it's a very simple thing. It's not that pro-GMO or anti-GMO. It's simply that the crops, on the, the crops that have been commercialized are safe to eat and safe for the environment. And so when people say there's science on both sides, well, you, you, you gotta be, think about the, the quality and who are the, the scientists. So, and, okay, and so let me back up a minute because that maybe seems really overwhelming if you're not familiar with this concept of scientific consensus. But what I try to get people to do is just because, of course, there's many reasonable people. Many people care about the environment. They get really worried, should I be anti-GMO or, or pro-GMO? I try to get people to be very, very specific because, and this is something farmers understand very quickly. Like, you know, if you're growing an orange tree in Canada, that's different than growing a cotton in India, right? Like, there is nothing similar you know in Canada you can't even grow oranges so it's um, you have to be case by case basis so that's why you can't say all GMOs are good or all GMOs are bad because you need to ask very specific questions like is genetically engineered cotton in Arizona how you know how does that affect the environment in that community so when you that's what Usually when I have conversations with people, it brings down the debate to really interesting discussions because if you have a discussion about, well, I don't know if I'm pro-GMO or anti-GMO, it is pretty much nonsensical because you're not asking the key questions about sustainable agriculture, like is it going to benefit that um, environment? Is it going to benefit? Is the farmer going to make a profit? Are they, is it safe for the consumers? Is it going to help so feed could, the world? Could we, sorry, Pam, could we use, could you, could you, are you able to use some, some actual examples? Like, are there, 
can you give one or two examples of um, G, G, GE or GMO technology that you think is doing a great job? And, and are there a couple examples where you think it's, uh, it's, it's failing to live up to what it promised? Yeah, sure. And there's, there's not even that many examples that have been commercialized. So take genetically engineered cotton. So that is the one of the, so with BT, if you're an organic farmer, so you know what BT is, right? Mm -hmm. um, do you use BT? I don't. I'm pretty small scale and I haven't needed to, but I, I, I'm aware of its, of its uh, role in uh, combating what mainly corn pests. Is that correct? Yeah, it, it, um, and cotton pests. It's a certified organic product. It's been used for 50 years, and the reason is it's very specific to particular pests, and it's, you know, our children eat it when they're playing in the soil. It's like, it's a very benign kind of compound. That's why it's it's um, used by organic farmers. Um, so what genetically engineered cotton is, the BT has been engineered directly into the cotton. And so I like that example. And so that's an example where um, that has been produced, put out by large corporations. So a lot of people don't like corporations, so they, oh, I don't like it, I don't like corporations. But if you look at the science behind it, and it's, it's very clear there's really, I don't think, any, uh, any controversy about the fact that genetically engineered cotton has massively reduced insecticides everywhere it's been used. So that's China, India, Arizona, and it's so important. So that's a goal of, one of the major goals of organic farming is to reduce inputs. And so genetically engineered cotton is a lovely example because it's also an old example. It's been used for 20 years, and there have essentially been these massive benefits, and it's been published by hundreds of scientists. There's really no um, disagreement about that. And it's such a simple... So if you talk to somebody, they go, oh, you know, I'm really scared. What if I eat... Maybe they don't know what genes are, for example. So then they might say, well, I'd be afraid if I eat a gene, I could get sick. Well, well, cotton, you're, it's usually for clothes. I mean, there's cottonseed oil, but you're not even eating it. So, again, like if you solicit the specific questions from people, like what exactly don't you like about genetically engineered cotton, then you can have a dialogue. They might say, well, I like it that... There's less insecticides in the environment because I've heard some of those are carcinogenic, which is true. But, you know, I don't like it because I heard Monsanto is selling the seed and I don't like Monsanto. Then you can have a real discussion because, you know, it's fine if people don't like Monsanto. It's, it's um, you know, you're attached to something tangible in that discussion, if you know what I mean. But if somebody says... I don't like GMOs because they spread insecticides all over. Well, that doesn't even make sense because every crop is different. Um, so there's one that uh, it's done a lot of good for people all over the world and very, very, very poor farmers. So Burkina Faso, it's sort of redistributing um profits and wealth. So now, I think in the United States, farmers growing genetically engineered cotton have a lot of competition because there's very poor farmers in Burkina Faso 
all of a sudden they can now produce cotton and sell it. Before, they'd have to buy very expensive insecticides. They weren't used safely. And they, um, you know, often they couldn't even afford the insecticides, so they lose their crops. So now there's a, an ability for very poor farmers to start to compete with farmers in the U.S. So, but maybe if you're a U.S. farmer, you say, oh, I don't like genetically engineered cotton because now we have more competition in India and China. So I guess that's what I'm trying to say is then you have really real discussions about very interesting issues like what does that mean that U.S. farmers have more competition from poor farmers in less developed countries? Is that a good thing or is that not a good thing? So it becomes a real discussion. Does that okay. make sense? No, it makes total sense. Now, I, I would love to balance that out with just one. I mean, are there any are there any uh, major adoptions of of, of a GE uh, crop that haven't worked out? I mean, I can offer one, but really, I'm relying on your expertise. It, it seems like uh, Roundup Ready crops are getting a lot of criticism because they haven't. Um, they've certainly resulted in a lot of use of uh, what is it? Oh, God, I'm going to get it wrong. Glyphosate. Glyphosate. Glyphosates and 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 as well, you know, there there are. I'm I mean I'm I'm reading that that it's not it's it's actually creating weeding problems. But is that is that an example of one that 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 you know on balance hasn't worked out, or am I just misinformed? Well, herbicide tolerance is incredibly interesting, and um, what you will read over and over is there's been a massive. Um, uh, addition of herbicides, but it's you have to realize it's originating from one, essentially one person, a guy named Charles Benbrook, who lives in Oregon, and he he's an activist essentially. So he cranks out all this information. But if you go to the site, and so it gets all over the websites, and he has all these associations with people. But if you look at the science, you, it, it it's very very interesting, and, and again. Many, many peer-reviewed scientific articles. You can go to the European Food Safety Authority. You can go to the National Academy of Science. If you can reach places where you have scientific consensus of thousands and thousands of scientists versus one person sitting in his office in Oregon, that's really what you want to reach for. You don't want to just trust what I say or this guy sitting in Oregon. You want to see how you can get access to the consensus. And so the, the herbicide tolerant is very, very interesting because there you can think, okay, well, why, if you're an organic farmer, you don't want to spray anything. So that product is useless to you. Even if you were allowed to go grow genetically engineered crops, the product would be useless to you because you're not allowed to spray herbicides. But if you think about that all of our water in the United States and Canada, I think all the way up to Alaska, is contaminated with atrazine, which is an herbicide that's been used for many, many years, and that farmers are still using herbicides to control weeds, then the next logical question is, well, is there an alternative? The reason glyphosate has been so, um, so well received by farmers, and again, this is something you can understand as a farmer. Farmers will buy something and use something if it benefits them. They're not going to plant use something that is harmful, um, more harmful than what they were using before. So the reason they've shifted is because glyphosate 
as you may know, is considered non-toxic. So non-toxic is the EPA term that's given. Compared to virtually all the other herbicides used, which are considered moderately toxic or toxic. So the whole idea here was to shift to a non-toxic compound. And so that is a net benefit. And so if you, there's been a lot of studies looking at um, the net toxicity of herbicides has dropped dramatically in the United States because of the shift from a more toxic to a less toxic. But if you if you talk to Ben Brook, who is in Oregon, he doesn't talk about toxicity because that's not what he wants to talk about. He just wants to talk about herbicides in total. But as an environmentalist, environmentalists want to reduce the toxicity in the environment. So that's one thing. The other thing is it's been very helpful is for no-till agriculture. So as an organic farmer, a lot of organic farmers are experimenting with no-till, but it, it's fairly difficult. Um, to get it all to work out. I don't know if you've experimented. Oh, amen, with it. amen. Yeah. I would love to be doing it more, but I, it is an, it's a challenge for it's sure. It's a challenge, right. And um, people are always experimenting, coming up with new ideas, but there's been people that are allowed to use um, these transgenic Roundup Ready crops are able to more rapidly shift to no-till. So there's been a, a, a huge increase in no-till, which really benefits all of us because there's less, of tilling and releasing the carbon um, carbon dioxide into the air, um, and you know it helps maintain soil fertility. Okay, so those are the good things, and of course it's very much easier for farmers, so they're not down there hand weeding, and um, we're losing a lot of people from farms all over the world, not only in the U.S. but in other parts of the world because people basically don't want that. They don't want to have that physical work. Um, but that's another issue. So then then the question is, well, but if you spray an herbicide, if you use it over and over and over, you're going to get resistance. And that is absolutely true. And we know that. We've known that for 50 years. If you work, use just one herbicide, you're going to get herbicide-resistant weeds. So that's why it's really important to have a kind of an integrated management strategy and there are, there have been weeds that have evolved resistance to Roundup, but they evolved res- resistant to Roundup even if they're not genetically engineered. And again, as a farmer, that's something you can understand because you go out there, spray, 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 you're going to select for weeds. But a lot of the public thinks that this selection for weed-resistant crops is specific to transgenics, but of course, it's not. It's specific to overspraying the herbicide. Um, and so then I think the more herbicide, more and more farmers are using glyphosate, so we are seeing more weeds. Um, but I think very few situations, it's actually, there, there are probably are some places in, in the U.S. where farmers are now thinking, okay, we're going to have to switch back to what we were doing before. And unfortunately, that's more toxic herbicides because Roundup's like a one-in-a-century kind of compound that's effective and non-toxic. So the problem is not the herbicide-resistant weeds because farmers can just do some other method, go back to the methods they were using before. The problem is that they are uh, 
they they will shift back to something more toxic. So again, it's a really interesting story. So the question is not, well, yes, GMO or no GMO. The question is, how can we manage weeds in a sustainable manner? And, you know, can we use genetically engineered crops as a tool, as part of that system? And I think that, you know, that's where the exciting questions are. Like, what do you, how, how do you, how do you do that? Okay. So I, I'm just looking at the time. I, I want to be aware of the time I have with you, Pam. But, um, so I think, I think I want to finish off by returning to your book and, and doing a little summary, but, but, but I have just, just before that, I, I kind of have, um, I, I want to ask you, like, is there any extent to which you can sympathize with the anti-GMO communities, um, problems or, or, or suspicion with some of the political process and approval process for getting some of this stuff approved? I mean, it does seem like, and per, perhaps I'll focus on the United States, there is an unhealthy relationship between some of the big corporations and some of the um, regulators and, and overseers of, of, the, uh, of, the, of the, I don't know, FDA and, 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 or, or EPA or, or institutions like that. Do you, do you think that's a fair concern? Um, do you think that, do you think that over the years there, there has been any compromise in the process of getting, of, of, of doing independent studies uh, and making sure stuff is safe before it goes out there? Yeah, so I think that's a lot of misunderstanding too because um, if you think about a crop, so you could be um, mixing genes in your backyard making all these crosses and you can actually do grafting which is different species you can do random mutagenesis where you introduce random mutations into the genome using carcinogenic compounds and then come up with a variety that you like the look of but of course you don't know what those genes are all of those the, none of those crops go through any regulatory approval and so transgenic crops which are um, many of them are considered to be much less of a dramatic difference than the crops that are out there now. They go through three different processes. And the idea that they're not tested is so, um, is so surprising if, you know, if you just basically look, okay, non-transgenic, no regulation, transgenic, three regulatory processes, um, and then you hear, well, okay, I guess people that know that there is regulation, it's the EPA um, um, and the USDA uh, look at this very carefully. Well, then people say, but it's only, it's all a cozy, cozy relationship. There's no independent studies. But that's completely wrong as well. It sort of just gets on the web. So if you go, I have this really wonderful student that you might want to talk to Carl Harl van Mogel, and he's uh, getting his PhD now, but he started this blog, Biofortified, and they really try to respond to these concerns because, of course, if you think they're not tested, there's something dangerous about it, um, that the companies are the ones that are feeding us, you're going to be pretty worried. So what they did is they collected all the independent studies and put it up on their website. So it's all freely available, and it's um, biofortified.org. And so far, they've collected 600 independent studies. So this idea that 
they're not tested or that there aren't independent studies is is absolutely wrong. Um, but you hear it again and again and again and again, but it doesn't make it true. I mean, it's just, again, like I said, people have heard again and again that vaccines are linked to autism. They hear it again and again. They see it on TV. They see movie stars. But it doesn't make it true. Um, and that's a concept that, of course, there's a lot of suspicion. And um, But, you know, you have to look at, look at your source. And, and logically, it doesn't, it doesn't even make sense anyway. So if you think about papaya, for example. So papaya, do you know about the papaya story? Well, I remember it from your book, although uh, you may as well just sum it, sum, summarize it really quickly for listeners. But, oh, okay. So papaya is an interesting story because I like to talk about appropriate technology. So sometimes when people hear science, the word science or the word technology, they're like, oh, I'm against that. But when you think about a farm, there's all kinds of technologies. Think about drip lines. That's a technology. It's a very important technology, especially in California, for reducing waste of water. But for some reason, that concept of genetic technology is harder for people to fathom because they don't, they don't see what genes are. Um, but really, any technology, the question should be, is it, a, is it an appropriate technology? Is it the simplest approach? Is it you know, the most beautiful approach? Is it the most benign approach for a particular problem? And those are the critical questions. And that's why I like the papaya story, because in papaya, there's a viral disease that just devastated all the orchards and papayas in, in the 1950s. And there was no way to control the disease. There was no organic approach, no conventional approach. These were fairly very poor farmers, Filipino farmers primarily. They had to move their orchards to another island, and there was a lot of fear the virus would spread because just like humans, plants get viruses, and the virus does spread. And that's a great story because there was a local Hawaiian who grew up working on the plantations, a very poor farm family, got very interested in plant genetics, went to graduate school, decided he wanted to go back to Hawaii and work on this problem. He got a grant from the USDA, a very small grant, $60,000 or something, and um, all nonprofit. And he said, oh, I'm going to try this new approach because if you pre-treat your papaya with a mild strain of the virus, it immunizes papaya to infection. And this had been known for a long time. But, of course, it's very difficult to go papaya by papaya and immunize it with the mild strain. And so he thought, I'm going to try this new approach, which is genetic engineering. And he took a little bit of the mild strain of the virus. He engineered it into the plant. The plants were completely resistant to infection. And today, and he distributed the papayas free to the growers, um, and today, 90% of our papaya in California is genetically engineered. And there's still no other method to control the disease. Um, we visited an organic grower in, in Hawaii, and we asked him, you know, what do growers do? He said, well, some of them go into the rainforest and cut down trees to plant papayas where no trees had been grown before, hoping they can avoid the virus. 
Well, that's obviously not a very good approach in terms of environmentalism. If you're cutting down the rainforest, you're contributing to global climate change, and you're getting affecting species diversity. And he, he didn't do that himself, but he did try on his farm. He had kind of a remote farm to grow some organic papaya. And the incentive for growing organic papaya is, of course, money. Um, Japan at one point was paying 20 times more for the organic papaya. But he showed us even in the first year his papayas were infected. And when they're infected, they yield 20 times less. And the crazy thing is that if you eat an organic papaya, it's full of the virus, just full of RNA and nucleic acids, just chock full. If you eat a genetically engineered papaya, it has trace, trace amounts of a mild strain of the virus. So even logically, it, it just makes no sense why anybody would be opposed to that. And I think what happens is people say, well, I don't like GMOs, so I'm not going to eat that papaya. They don't go through the thought process to think about, well, one, do I like papaya? Two, do I want to support this farmer? And three, is there any negative health effects or environmental effects? So again, I think if one is very specific about their concerns, you get a much better dialogue. So it, to Raul and I, the, it's not how the seed was developed that's important. It's, it's whether we can achieve the goals of sustainable agriculture. Well, and I know the vast majority of people that are engaged in this, they're so interesting. They care so much. They really care about the environment. They care about the food they give their children. But there's sort of a lack of ability to access the science. And so instead they access these kind of websites that are retreading a lot of information. So that's why it is important to hear really from farmers. So one question that never gets asked is, well, why do farmers plant it? I think it's really important to interview the farmers um, because there's sort of kind of this urban idea that we don't need to ask the farmers. They don't really know. But, of course, they've been, you know, these are generations of farmers, family farmers. If they make a decision to grow a genetically engineered crop, there's a real reason for that. And so I always... Well yeah, no, I would add to that that I think another uh, myth or, or understanding is that, you know, farmers are often doing this and they have no choice and they're getting they're getting into a cycle of debt to finance, having to purchase all these expensive GE seeds and, and that they're essentially indentured to these companies, which now that you've kind of said that, it does make me wonder about that because um, farmers are pretty, pretty, at least I'm only, and I'll just speak about the North American context. They're pretty smart people. And, and you made the point earlier that they wouldn't make business decisions that, that, that weren't benefiting them. And I think that's a good point. Yeah. My, my husband always gets annoyed, you know, because he's like, I'm not stupid. I buy seed because all farmers in the U S essentially buy seed from some private company. Um, there's very few that are selfing their own seed or doing their own breeding. And, you know, he says, well, I'm not stupid. I'm not going to plant something that doesn't yield what I expect or doesn't taste good or doesn't profit. I mean, if I don't like it, I'm not going to buy it again. So this idea that farmers are sort of these dumb pawns is, is usually pretty insulting to farmers. 
that the theme that has kind of developed, I think, through this conversation is that we've talked at le about at least three different examples of the technology in use. And, and it seems like what you want, and I, I took this from your book, but I, I, would, I would assume just in general, is that you really wish people would give um, more thought to the soundness of the science uh, so that we can get past, because you believe that there's, an, there's a, a, it sounds like an overwhelming consensus that the science is sound and, and that, um, you know, the, the crops that are on the market are, are safe. And that, that's the result of a, of a rigorous scientific process to, to ensure they're safe. And that you wish we could get past that so that we could take each new case on a case-by-case -case basis to determine its, its, uh, its kind of uh, pros and cons. Yeah, and even more important than that is I think, again, the seed is like so, such a, it's an important part of any farming system, but why do people all of a sudden are so hooked into this concept of seed when farming is much, much bigger than seed. Farming practices are, are very, very important, and the goals of sustainable agriculture, that needs to come first. How are we going to use less land and less water and less toxic inputs globally? How are we going to achieve that? And there are many ways we can achieve it, and we probably need to use all methods. And so kind of this obsession with genetic engineering is completely mystifying, I think, to scientists and to farmers. Um, it's, it's become sort of a, um, a stamp for a particular political group that they have to have that stamp. I mean, it's just like the Republicans, we have to be against global climate change. And then you have the liberals saying, well, we must be against vaccines and we must be against GMOs. And, and on the right, the right party, right side of the tilt here, you have to be uh, for creationism and against teaching science in schools. I mean, it just, it makes no sense that to me that you pick your political tribe and you don't think about the, the environment and you don't, you don't think about uh, one of the most greatest challenges of our time is how to feed the world without further destroying the environment. So those are the kinds of things that, you know, we try to get across in the book. Okay, so so look, I'm I'm aware we're over time here, so I just want to ask you one more time. You mentioned it earlier. You 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 say that 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 uh, you know the technology has the has been embraced by a scientific consensus. Can you name a few organizations that people can go and check out who have endorsed it that that um, you know can be trusted? So yeah, you mentioned the and, National and, National Academy of Sciences. Any any other organizations? And again, I'd be very specific in what I say. It's the process of genetic engineering does not pose any more risks than the process of conventional breeding. So that's like a very scientific statement, and that's what you'll find these agencies say. They're not saying that all GMOs forever are going to be safe to eat. They're not going to say any crop variety is always going to be safe to eat. It's just the process. There's no scientific basis for ruling out the process of genetic engineering in plant breeding. And then they will always also say, each new crop, whether it's genetically engineered or developed through some other method, has to be evaluated on a case-by-case -case basis in light of the criteria for a sustainable agriculture. So again, it's very specific um, 
what these organizations and you, think. And, and you believe you believe though that that evaluation process that is necessary is fairly robust. It's not as it's not as corrupted as as those in the anti-GMO movement argue. Well, there's nothing even to be corrupt about it because it's simply um, okay. So the National Academy of Sciences is um, a professional society of the greatest scientists in the nation. And the National Academy of Science writes reports for the government. So this is all nonprofit. It's outside of any corporation. I mean, the corporations, of course, they're going to write their own reports. So you don't look at that because they have conflicts of interest. But you also don't look at the organic industry information because there's a huge conflict of interest there because, of course, they want to sell their product. They want people to hopefully be afraid of GMOs so they'll buy organic products. So you have to put those extreme groups outside of the argument. And you really need to look at the academic science and the, the government groups. And so those are the World Health Organization, National Academy of Sciences, the um, European Food Safety Authority. And that's a really great one because it's just, I mean, it's, it's almost funny. It's surreal. So you have the highest authority in Europe, the European Food Safety Authority, has said over and over and over and over that the process of genetic engineering poses no greater risk than the process of conventional breeding. The crops on the environment are safe to eat, but the public follows, you know, the websites. And so you've got the politicians that are just churning around in circles. They're not even following their own science. Science. Um, so that's what is, is very fascinating from a sociological point of view. Why is it that some scientific consensus is rapidly accepted? Like, okay, it's accepted that we can um, walk down the street and be fairly safe every day. There's a chance a car might hit you, but why is it everybody's walking out of their houses? Well, they have experience now that they usually don't get killed. But even with genetically engineered crops, we have 20 years of evidence that there's not been a single instance of harm, not even one. And so it is similar in that way. And some of the controversies I guess we talked about in our book is, you know, fluoride was thought to be very, very controversial that now we, everybody, most people we know will have fluoridated toothpaste or here in Davis we have to have fluoridated water because it doesn't occur naturally here. So why is it that some issues are picked to be voted on on ballot initiatives whereas some are not? It's it's very, very interesting. Yeah, it sure is. And I, I sure appreciate the time you've taken to talk about it today. I, I, uh, I could have easily gone on a while, but I... I uh... We can always maybe pick it up another time too. So, uh, Pam, thanks a lot for coming on the 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 podcast, and and I I hope uh, look I and I just want to say I've again I've I've read your book and I recommend it to others who are still unsure about how they feel about the technology. It's a really great book, very accessible, and makes a very just reasoned argument for why we need to consider some of the benefits of of some of these technologies. Well, thank you. Yeah, and we are supportive of organic agriculture and the principles of organic agriculture, and we're not trying to say that organic farmers should now 
all change the certification. I don't think that's going to happen, but for the other 99% of the agriculture in the world, we really need to move forward to a more sustainable agriculture. And there are certainly um, many practices adopted by organic farmers that are going to be useful. And there's going to be some even more exciting crops that are, that are going to be developed. And everything needs to be checked out. Absolutely. Okay, well, well, thanks again. Well, and good luck with all your projects. Okay, that's it. Check out theruminant.ca for more podcasts and gardeners and farmers' submissions of their innovative tools, techniques, and ideas. Thanks a lot for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.